Good morning. This morning we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritist brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our, our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do you all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe the closest thing to a definition of spiritual gifts is what Paul says in Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He says, to each is given a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. Yeah, maybe this is the closest we see in the New Testament to any kind of a definition of what spiritual gifts 
in Christianity are all about. That to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And if you can come up with a definition out of that, it may go something like this. The Holy Spirit distributes the benefits of God's loving kindness in particular ways through particular believers for the benefits of everybody. The Holy Spirit distributes the benefits of God's grace in particular ways through particular individuals for the benefit of the entire church and even beyond that. God's abundant generosity, God's abundant provision is manifested in the diversity of spiritual gifts among us. When I look out at the room and I know people's lives, their stories, their abilities, their God-given abilities, I'm amazed at his generosity. I'm amazed at the abundance of his provision. Not only in a diversity of spiritual gifting here in the room, but a diversity of backgrounds and skills, experiences, temperaments and personalities, and even resources of all types. But despite their diversity, the ancient Corinthians were not unified. That's what Paul's been saying to them chapter after chapter. They were abundantly blessed. They were amazingly diverse, but they were not unified. And as Americans... I think you would agree that in, a, in our society, we are learning that diversity, which has become very important among us, but I think we are learning as Americans that diversity without direction breeds disunity. Think of the Avengers. Think of Marvel's famous characters, the Avengers, and they've, they've just put out a fourth movie all right, but if you go back to the original movie, you might remember uh, that despite their amazing powers uh, and despite the diversity within them, they were disunified. At first, they weren't working together. Aspects of their diversity actually divided them rather than unified them. I'll get back to the Avengers in a little while. But for now, understand that the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, specifically in chapters 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, we're in the middle of a long argument he's making right now, uh, Paul comments on the disunity of the ancient Corinthian church and how their disunity was evident in their public worship. When they got together, it was probably in a large home, but nonetheless, it was public. When they got together to publicly worship the Lord Jesus Christ, they were disunified and the way they were worshiping made it abundantly clear. We saw how that was the case last week and how they observed the Lord's Supper, celebrated communion. But here he talks about public worship in general by how they were using and thinking about their various spiritual gifts. And as we think of ourselves as a postmodern congregation, how do we, a people that we're so different and so diverse, how do we find unity when we worship? How do you find unity in a worship service or as a worshiping faith community with people who are very different than you? I think you're going to find today by what Paul's saying is that you find unity by appreciating the generosity of God among us and the purpose of God among us. 
We move from simple diversity to unity by appreciating the generosity and the purpose of God for that unity. And as each of us must discover who you are and what you have is designed by God and is intended by God for others' benefit. Who you are and what you have is all by the design of God and for God's intention to bless others. God's design for the diversity of spiritual gifts among us is this, an interdependency that benefits all of us. Paul's intention was not that the Corinthians should focus on the list of particular gifts that he gives them. Actually, there are two lists. There's one in the beginning of the passage and there's one at the end of the passage. And there's another list that he makes in the book of Romans. And there's another small list that he makes in the book of Ephesians. Now these minimal, there may be three, four, five New Testament lists of spiritual gifts, tops. But the few lists of spiritual gifts that you see in the New Testament, they're each different. So they're not exhaustive. They're not even explanatory. The gifts don't explain what they're about and they don't explain who gets which one and whether or not they're all listed there. Actually, each list is a bit different. So they can't be exhaustive and they're not explanatory. This is the purpose of the spiritual gifts lists in the New Testament. They are illustrative. They're illustrations for whatever point the writer is trying to make in the particular chapter. And that's the case here. The list of spiritual gifts is, is intended to serve a larger purpose. And so that's what I'm going to focus on today. Paul's purpose in listing spiritual gifts here is to highlight God's purposes as the giver of those gifts. Look at verses four through seven. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then he says later in verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And so Paul is telling him here that who they were and what they had was designed by God and intended by God for their mutual good. And to capture their imagination about this, he uses a metaphor of interdependency. It's a human body, a biological human body. And what does he say about the human body? In verse 12, he says, for just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. He elaborates further later on in verse 18. He says, God arranged the members in the body, meaning the church, Christ's body. He arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. So your own body is marvelously designed, biologically designed your, your face, your hands, your brain, your kidneys, your lungs, your nose, even though people want to change their noses. All marvelously designed. Your individual DNA containing immense genetic data defining you. All that data, endless streams of it, 
defines you. Um, a single lung is not you. As a matter of fact, you can lose an organ and get somebody else's, and you're still you. A single organ is not simply you. A single chromosome is not simply you, but all of it together, well, that's you. That's Matt. That's Judy. That's Stephen. That's you. All of it. So likewise, Paul is saying, God has marvelously designed Christ's body, the church. The church is not simply a pastor. It's not just a deacon. It's not just a scripture reader. It's not simply a baker who lovingly brings delicious treats for us on a Sunday morning. It's not simply a helper who hangs curtains and sets up signs and rolls equipment and moves chairs and tables so that other people can worship and learn and sing. Not any one of those parts makes up the body of Christ, but all of us as a whole make up the body of Christ, Paul is saying. Now, this concept challenged the Corinthian mindset of competitive social climbing, social cliques, a sort of ancient class system based on what you knew and whom you followed and what you had. Now, this is different. See, the great cultural diversity of ancient Corinth, it promoted individualism. It actually promoted social and economic segregation their diversity. And Paul, as a church, is calling them out of that mindset and saying, look, Christian diversity promotes unity. It should. It should promote unity around a common giver's generosity, a common giver's purpose in what the diversity is for. Not the lists of all the specific gifts, but the purpose of those gifts is Paul's meaning, is Paul's intention. He's trying to get them away from comparing one another based on what their spiritual gifts were. So the lists are just an illustration. He's trying to drive home the point of the purpose behind God's generosity and giving gifts. God's design for our diverse giftedness is an interdependency that benefits us all. Now, at this point, you have to ask yourself the question, but how do you get beyond mere diversity to actual unity? That's what our society can't seem to do. How do we get from diversity to unity? How does the church get from diversity in and of itself to actual unity? Not looking at diversity as an end in and of itself, but a means to a valuable end. How do we, how do we become unified? Because if the intent is unity... How is it achieved? Well, your response to the diversity of gifts among us must be this, a quest to discover how your uniqueness benefits the whole. We start moving towards unity as each of us individually asks the question, how does my uniqueness benefit the good of the whole? Now, if you're a Christian, you are called. We are called to seek the gifts that God has entrusted to us as individuals. We are called to pray about them and ask others about what they might be and earnestly seek them, as Paul says at the end of this chapter. Seek the gifts that God has entrusted to you and respond to that with contentment. Be content 
with what God has given you and who he's made you and be generous. Be content about the gifts God has given you and then once you know what they are, in that contentment, be generous with them. Contentment and generosity moves us toward unity. By the wisdom of God, by his planning, and by the grace of God, by his loving kindness and generosity, no one is here by accident. Not a single person is here by accident, and not a single person is here without a function, without a role, without a purpose. No one. Once you realize that there is a divine purpose behind your personal gifting, it begins to foster contentment in you. Divine purpose fosters contentment in you. Contentment, that amazing, elusive thing in life. As, as one Quaker writer put it, contentment was being at home, finally, in your own skin. Being at peace with who you are, specifically with who God has made you, with what God has made you. And so Paul says in verse 15, if the foot should say, he's going back to the metaphor of a body, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. The way you're thinking and the way you're feeling does not define the reality of what God has made you and who God has made you. One New Testament scholar explains how, how the ancient Mediterranean feet, the ancient Middle Eastern feet, were degraded as the lowest part of the human body because they got all the traction. The feet were exposed to everything everywhere you went. Curses were brought down on people with dirty sandals. There was a reason for that. And one scholar points out how to hear Paul say these words that just because somebody is a foot and feels like a foot in the church doesn't make them any less a part of the church. Slaves, servants with no rights, irrelevant in that society, must have been so encouraged to hear that although they were irrelevant in society, they had a place and a function in God's church, not even by the design of the other Christians or by their own design, but by the design of God himself, their maker. And how that must have brought them such a sense of encouragement and hope alongside of brothers and sisters of much higher status in society. Despised as a foot doesn't make you any less a part of the body. On the contrary, Paul goes on to say, in verses 22 and 23 and 24, he says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And he even says, our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. We have all, all sorts of parts, right? We have inner organs that are very, very weak, and that's why they're inside of us. They have to be protected. But just because they're vulnerable doesn't mean they're not essential. Our inner sensitive organs control everything about us. Our sexual parts are very important, and they're always, well, should be covered. Paul says. Look, here's his point. A body's parts 
The, the importance of a body part is not determined by its visibility or its invisibility. So our diversity nurtures unity when we are each content with God's design for us. When you realize that there is not only a divine purpose, I'm sorry, when you realize that there is a divine purpose behind your spiritual gifting, not only can it nurture contentment in you, it also can nurture generosity. Generosity, that eagerness to share what's in you the what's in you that God has put there, that God has entrusted to you, the investment that God has put into you, generosity is an eagerness to share that because you realize it's not yours and it was put there by somebody else for his purposes, which is to benefit others around you. Generosity. And Paul says in verses 24 and 25 and 26, God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You know this is true. If you have liver disease, it affects your brain. If one of us is struggling, we all struggle. If one of us rejoices, Paul says, we all rejoice. Now, it's true that generosity costs something. Generosity costs you. Generosity drains you. That's why so many of us don't serve. That's why so many of us don't help. That's why so many of us cut and duck and run and always look for a way to be independent and disassociated and disconnected because true generosity always drains us and always costs us. But here's the flip side of that. True generosity always blesses somebody else. True generosity always fills up those who receive what costs you. We often don't, we're often, oftenly not generous with all that God has given us and whom God has, who God has made us, what he has made us, because we're looking at only one side of that. We're looking at how it costs and how it drains. But it's equally true that it fills up and blesses somebody else. So our diversity nurtures unity when each of us is generous with God's investment in us. So ask yourself, being that I am content with who God has made me, with what God has entrusted to me, being that I am eager to be generous with that, how can my uniqueness benefit the health of the whole? Don't overanalyze the categories of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. We get obsessed with this stuff. We try and put it into a grid like your age and height and nationality on, on one side of the grid and on the other side of the grid, your personality, your temperament, your theological background, whatever color you like, what political party you vote for. You match those up, boom, here's where you are in the grid. You have the gift of helps. You have the gift of administration. You have the gift of teaching. For, you know, I'm going to get criticized for saying this, but we get way too bent out of shape over trying to figure out what our personal spiritual gifts are. Way too, we, we Americanize this stuff. 
Paul was simply saying, y'all got a lot of gifts. Y'all have a lot of gifts. Stop being conceited about who's got what gift. They're all for the good of the, the, the whole. So get, get, get out and use your gifts. Encourage one another. Don't get so proud and stuck up. The gifts are designed to benefit all of you, to unify you. Don't be proud about your diversity. Use your diversity to be unified. That's Paul's point. Now, I'm not saying that we don't study this stuff. Of course we do, not on a Sunday morning. We don't have time. But sure, we do study this stuff in detail, but don't overanalyze it all. I'm telling you that as a pastor. I study the Bible for a living. Don't overanalyze the list of spiritual gifts. It will not help you. It almost never helps. Look at it this way. If the spiritual gifts are anything like the nature of the spirit himself, you can't systematize it scientifically. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus in John chapter three about the way the Holy Spirit works? He said, it's like the wind. So if that's the way the spirit works, the gifts of the spirit in, of, in us cannot be scientifically quanti quantified. Rather, look at it this way, because we shouldn't presume to turn this into a science. Rather, just do this. If some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time, and I know you're aware of your giftedness and you serve faithfully and wisely and effectively, some of you may be saying, I don't have a clue how God has gifted me and how to help and how to serve and how to be a blessing. Okay, here's where you start. Observe how God is working through you to build up other people in his church. Observe how God is working through you to bless the entire body. That's internal and external. If your gifts are more designed to evangelizing and helping others come into the body, then that's just as, just as important. But how is God working through you to bless and build up others? Start there and ask a Christian you trust and respect to observe it in you so that you get some outside corroboration, so that it's not just you saying, hey, this is me. Let it be confirmed by other Christians you trust and respect. Do we not require the same corrective guidance that Paul was giving them 2,000 years ago? One scholar was very insightful. He said Paul was very wise to write this way, not only here, but also in the letter to the Romans, chapter 12. The scholar says it seems that the diversity of gifts, it, that it is the diversity of spiritual gifts and the temptation to comparison and false pride that comes with that diversity, that is Paul's chief concern. The diversity of spiritual gifts and the temptation to be prideful and boast about each person's spiritual gifts, that seems to be Paul's chief concern. Go back to the Avengers. It wasn't because of their diverse powers that they fought, right? I mean, actually, if you think about the whole Avengers story, they all got their power from the same source. Like, ultimately, like in the Avengers Marvel comic book world, all their powers essentially came from, from the same source. The problem they had was they had different temperaments. They had different personalities. They had different experiences and histories, and they had different fears based on their experiences. 
And so they weren't, they weren't unified because of how they interpreted their diversity. It wasn't simply that their diversity disunified them. It was how they interpreted the fact that they were different. That's what tripped them up. That's how their enemies took advantage of them to get them bickering with one another. When we begin to make comparisons of one another, because we're prideful people, pride sees diversity as a grounds for making comparisons with one another. And once we start comparing ourselves to one another, we get excited about the diversity and then we start looking around and go, oh, oh, I'm different. Oh, I don't have that. Oh, I'm not like that. Now we start in our pride, we start drawing comparisons. And once we start comparing ourselves to one another or to other churches or to other ministries or to other types of people, then two things, two dangerous things happen, boasting and envying. We boast and get excited and arrogant and prideful about our spiritual gifts or about our skills, our learned and acquired skills in life. We, get, we start to boast about our education or our theology. Some denominations, churches boast. You, you boast about individual strengths. Entire churches boast about their theology or boast about their spirituality or boast about their relevance. Relevance. We can't, I can't clearly boast about my ability to pronounce things correctly. Boast about their relevance in society. We do it on a, on a community level, on a denominational level, just as much as we do it on a personal level. And what Paul says to us, he said to the Corinthians in chapter four, verse seven, what do you have that you did not receive? What are you good at? What are you really good at? What are you proud about? What are you gifted at? Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you didn't receive, if, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, boasting is essentially saying and thinking what I am and what I have originated with me. I'm the source of what I am and what I have, or my family is the source of it, or my people, or my background is the source of who I am and what I have. And Paul's saying, you, you received who you are and what you have, so why are you acting as though you didn't receive it, as though it originated with you? And then there's envying, that, that discontentment with who you are and with what you have. Envying is a major force in human history. The teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter four said, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Drawing comparisons and finding ourselves lacking and wanting what we don't have is a major source of human development throughout history. We look at the wonders of science and the wonders of art and creativity and government and we realize that envy often is what drives human society forward. And I think wars and oppression and injustice are the proof of that. It's the ugly side of it. Envying is saying what I am not and what I don't have is God's mistake. Boasting is saying I'm the source of what I have and who I am. Envying is saying God made a mistake with me. What I don't have and who I am not is God's fault. When pride interprets our diversity, whether it's boasting or envying, 
When pride interprets our diversity, the result is always division and sometimes even sickness and death, the death of a body. As Paul said in verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? There is one thing that interprets our diversity in a positive and redeeming light. There's one thing that interprets our diversity in such a way that it unites those who, according to Paul, are truly spiritual. If you go back to the very beginning of the chapter, the first three verses are a little confusing, but Paul establishes a foundation to everything that he's about to say, to set things straight with the boastful, diverse Corinthians. He says in verse three, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, these are people who thought they were really spiritual. And Paul's saying, you want to talk about spirituality? Okay, here's what defines spirituality. Anyone who can say Jesus is Lord is spiritual. That's the common ground. That's where we begin. Paul establishes the entire argument on the unifying power of the gospel, of the good news itself. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus of Nazareth is the Jewish Messiah and God himself. That's what the ancient phrase meant. And it was the litmus test to saving faith and unbelief. And Paul goes on to say whether a Jew or a Gentile, whether a free person or a slave, a servant with no rights, confessing Christ's lordship makes somebody spiritual. That's what true spirituality is. Being able to recognize God in the man Jesus Christ. Being able to recognize God's only offer of reconciliation and forgiveness and true life and eternal life in the man Jesus. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, some of you, uh, when Jesus is asking his apostles, hey, you know, who do people say the Messiah is and who do you think I am? And Peter, you remember what Peter said? Yeah, yeah. Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you remember, you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Blessed are you, Peter, but that didn't come from you. My heavenly father gave that to you. Blessed are you, Peter, because that was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father who is, at, who is in heaven. And Jesus went on to say to Peter, it's on this rock that I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not advance against it. What's the rock? It's the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Messiah, the son of God. That's what our faith is built upon. The confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's where it all begins. It's on that confession. It's on the gift of faith that allows you to say that and believe it and live your life according to that reality that Jesus builds his church throughout history. And that is essentially what unites us, the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so our faith, yours individually, ours corporately as a body, our faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that works miraculously, powerfully, powerfully, but in very specific, tangible ways. The faith in Christ works against our boasting. And the faith in Christ works against our envying one another. Because we start looking at Jesus. Jesus didn't boast 
in his divine status. But he became a servant. He was rich, he became poor, the New Testament tells us. Jesus not only did not boast, Jesus did not envy other worldly leaders for their worldly status. Satan's temptations to Jesus when he was fasting in the wilderness were oriented around Jesus's potential to become a great leader. And Satan said, it all belongs to me. Worldly kingdoms, it can all be yours. Just worship me. And Jesus denied that temptation, completely denied it. He didn't envy others' worldly status. He was content. Jesus was content as the son of man to serve you. And Jesus was content and generous as the son of God to save you. So in his contentment, the Son of Man served us, his body. And in his generosity, the Son of God saved us, his body. And we're going we're gonna to remember that as we approach the Lord's table in a few minutes. Why you are what you are and why you have what you have is by God's design. And he has entrusted it to you as an eternal investment. He's going to cash in on what he's entrusted to you someday. He will ask you, have you been the person I created you to be? Not somebody I created somebody else to be. But have you sought to be content in your own skin and to be generous with what I have entrusted to you? He will ask us that someday. And Jesus promises to those who are faithful to this confession He will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Who you are and what you have is designed by God and intended for the blessing of others. Others. Service offered in contentment and generosity. Contentment and generosity is the source of the church's unity. That's where we get from simple diversity to powerful, life-changing, culture-transforming unity, contentment, and generosity with what God's given each of us, with who God's made each of us. So ask yourself now as you walk out of here and as you think during the week together in community groups, how has Jesus made you unique? Now, with faith in him, become content in that uniqueness. Be content in that Be generous with that. And that's the first thing you need to know concerning spiritual gifts. And we'll see what Paul has to say about them for the next two Sundays as well. Let's pray. Father, as as a praise chorus from my college days goes, I haven't sung it in years, but it comes back to my mind today. I seek the giver not the gift. Father, we confess to you our our infatuation and obsession with self-expression, with our diversity, with what makes us unique, seeking desire, ways to look and to be different and to catch one another's eye and to judge one another for being different. Father, uh, right now we say that you are our greatest desire, not the things you entrust to us, but you, Father, as the giver. We desire you in that desire for you, in the contentment that comes by faith, in the generosity that comes through faith. Help us 
to acknowledge, to recognize our spiritual gifts, and to use them effectively for your glory and for the benefit of your whole body. In the name of Christ, amen.